So the readings this morning are from the Gospel of Matthew across chapters 26 and 27, and you'll find the verse breakdown in your orders of service. Um, If you wanted to read along in your pew Bibles, it's pages 31 to 34, and I'm just going to read it as one text, not announcing each separate verse. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and they conspired to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the festival, or there may be a riot among the people. Jesus said, Get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Arrest him. At once he came up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you are here to do. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and arrested him. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus in order to bring about his death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. The crowd shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he could do nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took some water and washed his hands for the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Then the people as a whole answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand and knelt before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. After mocking him, They stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross now, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he wants to. For he said, I am God's son. The bandits who were crucified with him also taunted him in the same way. Can you believe it was only five days ago that we were at Palm Sunday with the crowds 
shouting and waving and cheering, grabbing their, grabbing their palm branches and waving them, and now we're at the cross. If you were here for our worship service five days ago, we concluded with an observation and a challenge. I'll start with some further thoughts about the observation and I'll return to the challenge in a few minutes. The observation at the end of the service that I left those of us who were here with was that if we followed the story of the last few days of Jesus' life through the week that we call Holy Week, we would see an alliance forming against him. And it was an alliance between people who normally hated each other's guts, between people whose distrust of each other was at such a visceral level that in any other week, the prospect of collusion and collaboration would seem an unthinkable option. And yet, sure enough, here we are, on the morning of the day we call Good Friday, and the unholy alliance is now in place. It's all there in the biblical story, some excerpts of which we've already heard this morning. It's an alliance between zealots and Pharisees, between simple peasants and Roman soldiers. It's an alliance between a disillusioned disciple and the temple hierarchy, between convicted bandits and interested onlookers. It's even an alliance between the Jewish king Herod and the Roman governor Pilate. What is it that has brought these unlikely people together? Why do we encounter this unexpected collusion across barriers of nationality, social class and religious conviction? What possible motive could be so powerful that sworn enemies have united to pursue it? I think these are important questions because they take us to the heart of why Jesus was executed and why it matters so much even today. But the answer isn't obvious. After all, even if the crowd had thought that Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to incite an armed rebellion against the Romans, and even if the only reason they had cheered him into the city on his donkey was that they saw him as a saviour riding in on a charger to free them from the yoke of oppression, they were pretty quickly disabused of this idea. Jesus didn't rally the rebels once he arrived in Jerusalem. He didn't send for soldiers and summon zealots. And so, as disillusioned crowds have done since time immemorial, the Palm Sunday mob just went home at the end of the day, back to their lives, their families, their jobs, to quietly and hopefully await the next leader to rouse their rabble. Now, even if Jesus was briefly and mistakenly a threat on Palm Sunday, that threat was spent by Sunday evening. 
And this is surely not enough of a reason. For the entire city, at every level of its social structure, to spend the next week machinating his unlawful execution. So where did this plot against Jesus come from? What provided the motivation for the events of Good Friday? Well, I think it was a desire for peace. Which may sound counterintuitive, but bear with me on this for a moment. Jerusalem had been a city living with violence and menace for decades, centuries even. With an oppressed population living in the tension between the Roman occupation, their own monarchy, and their religious leaders. Romans, kings, and priests all fought each other for control, while then uniting to contend with regular outbursts of populist uprising. The Roman soldiers patrolled the streets, seeking to enforce peace by threat. The priests sought power and control by mixing religion with politics, and the Jewish kings brokered their survival by appeasing all sides. It was a melting pot. It was a recipe for regular and predictable flare-ups once the flashpoint of tension was reached. Suddenly there would be an explosion of violence, people would be fighting on the streets, shouting for change, and then energy expended, the people would crawl off to lick their wounds, and an uneasy peace would return until the next time. If you look at the history of Jerusalem in the 250 years or so before the time of Jesus, it happened again and again and again. This was the history of this people. And of course, in common with most people, in most places, most of the time, most of those living in Jerusalem in the first century just wanted to get on with their lives. Raising their families, working their jobs, doing what they wanted to do. Most people have no appetite for sustained and ongoing violence on their front door. And I think this human and commendable desire for peace for an end to violence, lies behind what happens to Jesus. As sworn enemies united to ensure the death of this relatively helpless, innocent man. They were all seeking peace and they were trying to achieve it through the offering up of a scapegoat. They took all their anger and frustration and impotence and violence and placed it on a convenient target in the belief that if they could just rid themselves of this Jesus, he would take their problems with him to his grave. And of course it worked, briefly. This is why scapegoating is such a compelling practice. When people unite around a common enemy, they are united. You know the saying, my enemy's enemy is my friend. Well, that's the mantra of scapegoating. If we all know who our common enemy is, then for as long as it takes us to hunt them down and kill them, 
we can set aside or otherwise live with the tensions that would normally drive us to turn on one another. All we need is a common enemy, and all will be well. And for that first Holy Week, Jesus became the common enemy. But the next question is why? What was it about his presence in that city that made him the focus? Who or what made him the scapegoat? The Gospels go to great lengths to portray Jesus as innocent. He wasn't a violent revolutionary. He didn't incite people to rebellion. In fact, the stories are at pains to tell us that he was so innocent that he'd never even sinned, not once, apparently. If ever a man didn't deserve Jesus, sorry, didn't deserve death, it was Jesus. Jesus was this kind of archetypical, innocent man. So why was he killed? Well, here's the thing about Jesus. He systematically refused to play by the rules. And if there is one thing the world does not know how to deal with, it's people who refuse to play by the rules. The world does not know what to make of those who reject the roles that they are supposed to play, born to play, maybe. And Jesus was supposed to be a revolutionary. It's what the Messiah was going to do. He was supposed to raise an army and overthrow the oppressor, or at least die a glorious martyr in the attempt so that his memory would linger on and inspire the next one. But when he rejected that role in favour of another path altogether, he set himself up as a far more threatening figure than ever he would have been if he'd grabbed a sword and started hacking at centurions. Because the sinless non-violence of the path taken by Jesus, far from colluding with the violent narrative that everyone expected, actually called it as a lie. The path of Jesus exposed the violent expectations of all sides, leaving king and peasant alike vulnerable to their own sinful desires and hopes which were laid bare for all, including themselves, to see. It was like Jesus lifted a veil from the souls of the people, suddenly exposing them to shame, because all could see their ethical and spiritual nakedness. Do you notice in that wonderful picture on the front of your order of service by Ho Shi, the Chinese artist, there is only one character there who is naked, and it's Mary Magdalene, and she's the one who is worshipping. All of the expectations are reversed in the story of the cross of Jesus. And all of those powerful people, all of those popular crowd who wanted violence, it was all laid bare for the world to see. Both the populist hope of violent solution and the sinister violence that lay at the heart of the regime were alike laid out in public. This is why they needed him gone. Not because he was a political threat to the status quo. 
nor because he had failed to meet the expectations of the people, but because of his sinless nonviolence, and because that had unmasked the sinful darkness at the heart of his society. This is the challenge that Jesus brought. This is why they all united to kill him. They made him the scapegoat for those very sins that his presence had brought into the light. And this is why the unholy alliance formed, and it's why the people and the priests and the ruling elite conspired together to rid themselves of the troublesome rabbi from Nazareth. And we do it still. The events of Jesus' death didn't just expose the corruption of first-century Jewish-Roman society. They exposed the darkness that takes root whenever humans conspire to seek peace through violence. The theologian Walter Wink sums it up for us. He says, The belief that violence saves is so successful because it doesn't seem to be mythic in the least. Violence simply appears to be in the nature of things. It's what works. It seems inevitable, the last and often the first resort in conflicts. If a god is what you turn to when all else fails, violence certainly functions as a god. What people overlook, then, is the religious character of violence. It demands from its devotees an absolute obedience unto death. And Jesus challenges the God of violence. He challenges the assumption that it's the only place to go to solve society's problems. He did it in the first century and the God of violence fought back, sending him swiftly to the cross for daring to speak an alternative truth. And Jesus continues to challenge the assumptions of violence today. And the God of violence continues to fight back, trying to condemn those who would speak the unnerving words of peace to their own violent deaths. Well, I promised you an observation and a challenge. So much for the observation, now for the challenge. Last Sunday, I also challenged us to watch the news this week, to see if we could find examples of scapegoating in action to see if we could notice where enemies unite against a common enemy, who they can then hold accountable for all the wrongs in their lives and all the ills of their society, and whose destruction can seem, at least for a while, like the moment of ultimate salvation. Did you find them? Because I did. What do you think is going on, I wonder, in Egypt, in Syria, in Korea. What motive led to the first ever deployment last night by the United States in Afghanistan of the mother of all bombs, an act which President Trump has described as another successful job? We identify an enemy and we unite to destroy them, seeking temporary alliances with sworn enemies to save us from the darkness of sin that lies at the heart of our society. George Orwell expressed this very well in his novel 1984, where the world is seen divided into three power blocks, and at any given time, two of them are at war with the third, 
It's just that the ally and the enemy change from time to time. So A and B unite against C, but suddenly it's B and C united against A, and then it's A and C united against B. But the significant thing is that whenever the alliances change and the enemy changes, history is rewritten in the world of 1984. Today's ally has always been the ally. Today's enemy has always been the enemy. And those who threaten the status quo are neutralized by being aligned with the enemy. It's a wonderful expression of the deeply entrenched violence which lies at the heart of our globalized society, just as it lay at the heart of the Roman society of the first century. And just as Jesus exposed it then, so he exposes it now. It is disarmed by his death on the cross. As the ultimate act of violent destruction is visited on an innocent man to reveal the depths of human sinfulness. Jesus, you see, dies for the sins of the Romans. He dies for the sins of the Jews. He dies for my sins, for the darkness in my heart. He dies for your sins, for the darkness in your heart. And he does so speaking words of forgiveness. Because it is only through this new path of non-violent love that a way emerges that can lead from darkness to light. But that's a story for another day, for a Sunday that's coming soon. Today, we sit at the foot of the cross. And we do so in humble recognition of our own sins, and we do so in mourning for the sins of the world that keep bringing us back year after year to this moment of crucifixion. Today the God of life hangs on the cross. Today the God of love bears the hatred. Today creator of the world is unmade. And as we stand before the cross and look on our scapegoat, we pray for all who are scapegoated by the violence and fear and hatred of which we are part. We pray for all who have suffered in these last days by violence unleashed. And we pray for those whose souls are scarred by unleashing the violence. We pray for those who are scapegoated in a society afraid of difference because their language or their colour or their culture is not 
hours. And so they are made unwelcome, they are made afraid, they are driven out. And we pray for those whose souls are scarred by driving out the others. We pray for all who are scapegoated in a society that cannot talk about sexuality well because their orientation and their identity does not fit. And so they are mocked, abused, imprisoned and killed. And we pray for all whose souls are scarred because they cannot see the truth of love. We pray for those who are scapegoated because they will not play by the rules and they do not fit the norms and they challenge easy assumptions and they will not do as they are told and so they are silenced and argued with and undermined and accused and we pray for those whose souls are scarred because they cannot see a bigger world and a different way of doing things And we pray for ourselves as we scapegoat, as we within our own communities, our church and our families, blame the other ones, those who will not do what we want them to. We pray for those we have hurt. We ask forgiveness for the hurt we have caused and we pray for our healing. As we wait at the foot of the cross and watch evil and violence and scapegoating have its way We plead that our eyes will be opened so that we will see everywhere where this happens and so that we will see it within ourselves and know the truth. Now the salvation that the cross brings is that the truth sets us free. And so we ask for the grace, the courage to know who we are not just the bits of ourselves that we like 
the darkness and the violence and the scapegoating that we carry. For as we stand before the cross, we acknowledge that not one of us is innocent. And that we can only be here. Because on that cross, the God of love bore all violence. And the God of life experienced death. And the creator of the world was unmade. And we are part of it. Amen.